to the Badass Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Fox. If you love historical fiction, or if you're an indie author, or you're just wondering about publishing with maybe a hybrid publisher, you will love today's guest. She's truly an inspiration and has a lot of insight to offer in today's interview. So I hope you stick around and enjoy it. So today's guest was born in Athens, Greece, as an Air Force brat. Terry M. Brown now calls the North Carolina coast home. She began her writing career helping small businesses with content creation and published five nonfiction self-help books dealing with real estate and finance. In 2020, she and her husband, Bruce, rode a tandem bicycle across the United States from Astoria, Oregon to Washington, D.C., successfully raising money for Toys for Tots. Terry is a wife, mother, grandmother, and author who loves word games, reading, bumming on the beach, taking photos, singing in the shower, hunting for bargains, ballroom dancing, playing bridge, and mentoring others. In 2017, after winning the first annual Anita Bloom Ornoff Award for Inspirational Short Story, she began writing fiction in earnest. Terry's debut novel, Sunflowers Beneath the Snow, is a historical fiction set in the Ukraine. So welcome to the show, Terry. It's a pleasure to have you chat with me today. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. So Sunflowers Beneath the Snow is your debut novel, and it follows three generations of Ukrainian women during the Soviet regime up until shortly after the 2014 Russian invasion. Um, And obviously, this is a very timely release um, due to everything that's going on in the world. Um, And this brings up an interesting point about hybrid publishing, because you're able to have that freedom to decide when you launch your books. So can you tell us how you decided that hybrid publishing was the route that you wanted to take? And how's that going for you? Yeah, so for me, I kind of like happened into it. I really wanted to be published, you know, what I call the normal way. And I had, you know, I'd sent out all kinds of query letters, and I was trying to find an agent, and it just wasn't working. I just wasn't getting any response, um, you know, and that that gets really, I don't know, it just starts to make your heart hurt because you've written this this manuscript and you feel it has promise, and you know, I had, most of the time you don't even get a letter back that says no, thank you. You just never hear from them, and it just is very discouraging. Um, so then I thought, well, I'm going to self-publish. My dad had given me. My dad passed away three years ago, and uh, before he before he died, he told mom that he wanted her to give my brother and I both just a little bit of money to do something that we wouldn't have done otherwise. And I thought I'm going to use that money and I'm going to self publish. And right before I really decided that is definitely what I'm doing, I had gone to a local book club, and we were reading a book by a local author who self published. And it wasn't good. I didn't like it. And it wasn't that I didn't like the book. It was that it was not well edited. It was full of mistakes. Um, I felt like the conversation, the dialogue was very stilted. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I don't want to put my book out and have that happen to me. Like, I need to know that what I've got out there is, is good enough. And I didn't really know, like, now what am I supposed to do? So then I was back to the drawing board. And I heard about Atmosphere Press, and they're a hybrid publisher. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to check. I'm going to see what what does this even mean? Like, what does it mean? And 
how is a hybrid publisher different than like a vanity publisher? Because to me, a vanity publisher is just self-publishing that costs you more. And I thought, I don't want to do that. So I talked with them and I found out, you know, they do not just accept any book, which is what a vanity publisher will do, that they go through and they determine, does it have any merit with editing and the, and the right kind of polish? Can it be turned into something? And they read my manuscript and they said, yes, we can, we would love to have you as part of the team. And so I thought, you know, do I want to do it or don't I want to do it? I mean, I really went back and forth, but for me, what was, was perfect is they offered editing, they offered proofing, they helped with the cover design, they helped me come up with a title because I, I was just all over the place with titles. I didn't even know where to start. I didn't have to do any of the work about getting it onto Amazon. They did a lot of that background stuff that I just knew absolutely nothing about. And then they also gave me a little bit of marketing help. And I think that for me, especially this first book, um, and I think I'll probably go with them my second book, but I'm leaving options open. But for the for me, for the first book, I think it was a, a perfect choice because I got I still have all the rights to my book. For instance, they don't put it up on Kobo. I'm taking care of that this weekend because I've decided, yes, I want it there and I have the rights and I'm allowed to do that if I want to. And if I want to reduce the price of my book for a month in order for me to have, you know, some kind of a, a price, you know, promotion going on, I get to do that. And I like having that kind of control over my book. And the same was true with the editing process. I had an editor. They were very good. They helped me tremendously. They offered all kinds of really great advice, but I did not have to take it. So I went through and with their editing, and I liked 95% of what they suggested. And I thought this is really good for me. But there was a little bit that it was like, that's going to change my story too much. And I don't like that. And so I didn't have to use it. And I really like having more control of my work because mm -hmm. I wrote it the way I wrote it for a reason. And I don't want an editor to come in and say, well, we don't like your reason and we want the book to go off in this direction instead. And so, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with self-publishing and I don't think there's anything wrong with publishing with, with a publishing company, you know, a, a traditional publishing company. I just think you have to look at what are you hoping for and what's the best way to get that goal? So. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. You have to educate yourself about all of the different options before you can make one that is right for you, right? So if exactly. you're only heading in one direction and you're ignoring all these other things, you don't know if those might be the better option for you. So that's right. good. Right. And, and which is why, you know, people have asked me, well, what are you going to do with your second book? And, and I don't have the answer yet. First of all, I'm not quite ready to do that. You know, this book just launched and I'm still, you know, crazy busy with it. Atmosphere Press has been really wonderful to me mm -hmm. and I don't have any problems with them. So if I don't go with them, it's not because we had an issue but I don't know that it will be the best fit for my next book or that it'll be the best fit for wherever I am as an author when it's time to release it. So, you know, I'm kind of leaving my options open. Yeah. Yeah. And that's totally okay. Everyone should, should take a look at, at what their options are, you know, with each book that they want to. I think so. Yeah, yeah absolutely.
And so how long did it take you to write the draft and then have it edited? So go through that whole process. How long did you, would you say it took? I probably need to start with, well, okay. Yes, I got the idea in 2016, but I didn't start writing anything until 2018 because I just didn't feel that I was the right person to write this story. I had this, this idea, but I thought... Mm-hmm. You know, uh, in 2016, I had spent 16 years writing for small businesses, but I had done no fiction writing. I wanted to, but I was afraid to because, you know, what if I failed at it? I hate failing. It's just not my thing. And so I just, I don't know, I just couldn't do it. So I had this idea. I had heard, you know, this thing needed to be told, but I didn't think I was the person to do it. And then uh, in 2017, I went on a writer's retreat and I wrote my first manuscript. I wrote 50,000 words in, in a week. Wow. And I just sat down and kind of like, I call it word vomit, just threw yeah. it all out there on the paper. And it is not a manuscript that I will probably ever do anything with. It more or less showed me that I had the ability that I could do it, that I had a beginning and a middle and an end. I had characters, I had settings, I had dialogue, you know, I had all the major parts. In order for that book to ever see the light of day, my character has to be better developed. She is so 2D. She is completely and totally perfect. She doesn't have any problems. She went through, she's like superwoman, you know, she just gets through everything perfectly. And I think part of it was maybe where I was in my own life. And this was my first story and my character had to be perfect. It was crazy, but it taught me a lot. And then I've, I've written several more. And then finally in 2018, I had the opportunity to go to another retreat and I thought I'm going to try to, to write this book. And so in a two-week period of time, I got about 50,000 words down and it it was start to finish, but it wasn't a complete manuscript. Like for me, when I get that, that down, it's more than an outline, but it's not a complete manuscript. Yeah. Like I still have to go back and do a lot of character development and a lot of setting and a lot of just extra because more or less I was getting the story out of my head. And I don't worry about any of the editing as I go. I don't worry about, you know, if I don't have a complete sentence, it doesn't bother me. I just keep moving. Um, And then when I go back to it, that's when I start doing more. I'll I'll read and I'll think, well, that's awful. You know, and then I, yeah. um, So two weeks to get that 50,000 words. I took another week at my mom's house. She was on vacation. And so I asked her if I could use her house. I don't write well at home. I can write at home for little tidbits of things. But if I need to really focus, I can't be worried about taking the dog out or feeding my husband or doing the laundry or any of those things. And I can't do that here. You know, I'll tell myself, oh, yes, I'm going to do it. I'm going to lock myself in the office. But inevitably, I've got to get up and leave the office. And then there's something that needs my attention and I can't not pay attention to it. So, yeah. <laughs> so I spent a week at my mom's house and I wrote another 30,000 words. And then at that point, I turned it into the publisher. And then I probably did another, I don't know, 80 hours or so of, of editing. So I can't tell you exactly how many hours or, or whatnot. That story percolated in my head for two years before I finally kind of threw it out there on the paper. So yeah, 
Yeah. So interesting though, um, because you were saying that you, you didn't feel like you were the right person to tell that story. And, and now here we are. So what changed for you in that? So the, the story is, it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of sad in some ways. Um, I lived for 14 years with an emotionally abusive spouse. And during that period of time, I was writing for small businesses, but I did not believe in myself anymore. And I just did not believe that I would ever be able to do something of much value. I didn't feel like I had much value. And in 2017, so I went on that writer's retreat and two weeks later, I left. And partially it was that writer's retreat because while there, I recognized that I could do something more, like there was a little spark inside of me. And also that week away gave me experience of not being involved daily with an emotionally abusive person on you all the time. And the freedom was so amazing that I didn't want to go back home. And so things came to a head and we won't get into it, but but I went ahead and, and left. And so from that point on, I began to believe in myself a little more. And then I think that's the real change is I realized that I had a, a, an ability that I enjoyed writing, that people seemed to enjoy what I wrote. And why shouldn't I write that story? Yeah. So I did. That's awesome. I can relate to you more, more than you know. Um, so I hear you on that. And that's, that's fantastic that you, that you found that within yourself and, and here you are. And here I am. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, can you give our listeners a little summary of the book? Of course. So it starts with uh, Lyak Sandro. So he's living in Soviet Ukraine with his wife and his daughter. He wishes to have uh, Ukraine back as a sovereign nation again. Uh, his daddy was a rebel and he wanted to be like his father. And so he was doing a little bit of spying, not your, not, you know, not the spy craft like you see on the movies with, you know, but he was doing things that could have gotten him in real trouble. And he eventually got caught and his handler got him out of the Ukraine. But in order to get him out of Ukraine, they had to, he had to leave his wife and daughter. And so the story pretty much follows his wife and his daughter and eventually his granddaughter as they kind of go through living in Soviet Ukraine, early independence of Ukraine, then into later independence, and then into the invasion of Russia in 2014. And you kind of see how the, the different characters have different feelings about what it means to be Ukrainian and how they get along and sometimes don't get along and, and what it takes for them to remain connected as a family kind of shows the way different generations view things. And then just the way family dynamics. And I like to, it, it to me, it gives a lot of hope for people because the circumstances they were living in were pretty crummy, but they still had hope and they still lived their lives and they still went about, you know, loving and having families. And I think that in the United States anyway, I think that a lot of us, you know, we think of Soviet regime and we think, you know, how horrible it must have been and that everyone must have been walking around feeling grim all the time. But the truth is, is that they were still living. Yeah. 
you know, and I like us to be able to, to get kind of into the shoes of people who lived a very different experience and understand that humanity still exists in those circumstances and that, mm-hmm. that we need to understand that. We need to try to be able to do that where we can get into another space and try to understand it from a different point of view. Yeah. Well, I, I really enjoyed the story. I, I, well, I really did. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it taught me some things too. Um, and I think it was humbling to read that too, because you, you know, everybody lives in their own place in the world here. You know, we, we have what we need. We're not experiencing those things. And, you know, it, it kind of gives you an inside look at what some other people are experiencing, but in the face of all of that, they are still able to live their lives and to have that hope. So I, I really enjoyed it. Um, what was the hardest part for you to write? I don't know that there was any particular part that was the hardest. To me, the hardest part of writing is editing. Yeah. You know, I like the initial get all the, the story out and then going back is much harder for me because I feel like I've already done the big purge, you know, I've already done the big thing. I got the story out. What more do you want from me? You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and what more they want is a really good story instead of just this thing I threw out on the paper. So that's a little hard for me is, is the going back and figuring out like, you know, where are the, where are the weak spots and how can I fix that? Mm-hmm. And is it moving too slow? Is it moving too fast? You know, and it's interesting, you can't really know, is it moving too slow or it's moving too fast? I have had uh, several reviews on Amazon, and one of them was, it was really difficult for me to get into, but I'm glad I stuck with it because I really loved it. And then I had another person who said, it gripped me from the first page and I couldn't put it down. And it's like, so which is it? Was it moving too fast or was it moving too slow? So, you, you know, it's just, to me, editing is very hard because you're editing for your audience, but then when you get it out to your audience, you hear completely opposite things sometimes from people. And so, yeah. Yeah. You never know what someone's going to say. And, and no. you know, it's everyone's favorite word is subjective. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, um, and I think as an author, you kind of have to have a little bit of th- thick skin yeah. to be able to handle the fact that, you know, someone's going to say that. I had someone say that, they were very disappointed because I was not Ukrainian. Well, <laughs> sorry. In terms of your characters, who is your favorite character to write? I think that Yvetsi probably is the character that I most understand, partially because, especially in the end, I mean, she's my age. You know, I have her at my age, I'm 58. And I I kind of assumed that, you know, she's right in there with me. And she experienced postpartum depression, and I experienced postpartum depression. And we are dealing with, you know, the whole emptiness syndrome. And I have four kids. And when they all left, and boy, my eyes were, it was like, what am I supposed to do with myself now? So I think that for me, she was the character I most understood because she and I've been through some of those same things. You know, I, I, when you're writing about postpartum depression and you've had it, then you really connect with that. Mm-hmm. But the other characters are very close to my heart too, because they may not have been me as much, but they are 
they're very full of of me and my mom and my kids and you know so yeah i would say that really i like all the women characters mm-hmm. and i think it's just because i put a lot of myself into them i don't know how other authors do it but there's a lot of me and most of my characters so yeah I think she's the character that I connected with the most as well. So I'm kind of age-wise in between her and her daughter. So, um, and I, I have five kids and I've, um, you know, the, the birth and and the struggles with having toddlers and dealing with everything. And so I, I think I, I, she read, she resonated with me most, um, but I enjoyed getting to know all three characters, all three generations. Um, yeah, it was really interesting. And it was interesting too, just to look at, you know, the things that are going on in a country and in the world and all of these things that are happening right now, it's not just affecting you and it's not just affecting your immediate generation, right? It's going to affect other generations. So, and every decision that is made has an effect on future generations. It has a ripple effect that keeps going, you know, like Sandro made a decision in 1973 and in 2014 and 15 and 16, it was still ringing. Yeah. You know, so you know, what, what we do matters. Mm-hmm. What's yeah. happening matters. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. And so you recently won the highly recommended award from the historical fiction company for, for this book. And it still seems very strange for me <laughs> to call the 1970s historical fiction. It just makes me feel old. Um, what drew you? I mean, I guess this kind of ties in with another question too. What was the inspiration behind the story and what drew you to want to write in that particular time frame? Okay. So this is really, it's, it's crazy. My two, two of my three daughters uh, were camp counselors and every year they would have international students come um, and be there for the summer and they would get uh, a work visa. And then their visa usually did not run out when camp was over. And so then they got to spend a little more time in the United States before going back home. And there was a girl from Ukraine. Her name was Ksenia. And she came in 2013. And then she got to come back in 2014. And when she went to go home, she couldn't because Russia had invaded Ukraine. And it had invaded right in the area where her parents lived. And so Uh, She was lucky enough to get her visa extended for three months while she tried to work out getting to stay here, at least until things had calmed down there. And her lawyer got in touch with her and said, it's just not going to happen fast enough. And we're going to send you to a refugee camp in Poland. And she didn't want to go to Poland because she didn't speak Polish and she didn't have family there or friends or anything. So she went to New York City and she kind of disappeared for a little while. Uh, kept working with her lawyer. Uh, she now has a green card and she's still here in the United States. She's never been home and she hasn't seen her parents again, except, you know, through like Skype and Zoom. Um, and so you can't, I mean, I can't even imagine leaving your house at, she was maybe 19, 18, 19 years old for what she thought was a summer. Yeah. You know, and here it is eight years later and she's never been home and, and may never get to go home again. We, you know, she doesn't really know. Um, But in 2016, so now she's been here for two years, at which point she has her green card and she's working and she's a student and um, speaking English really well. 
still very heavy Ukrainian accent, but, you know, speaks English really well. She came to visit. And while she was visiting, she told me this little tiny sliver of a story of something that happened to her in New York City. And I thought, there is no way. There, we must be having a communication issue because what she's telling me is crazy. Like, there's no way this is true. So I started asking her questions, trying to make sure that I was following her story. And I was. And I could not believe it. And that's when I thought, that has to be told, that little, that ending. Mm -hmm. Well, after 2016, we lost track of her for a little while. She um, wasn't on social media anymore, and we didn't know how to get up with her. And, you know, so I wasn't ever able to ask her a lot of questions or to find out the behind the story story. So I made up 80,000 words so I could tell that little sliver of a story. And that that little sliver of an ending is the ending in the in the final chapter, not the epilogue. That's all me again being yeah. fictitious, but that little, little ending. And, and you've read the book, so you know mm -hmm. what the ending part is. And I don't want to tell it because it just ruins the whole story. But that little sliver is a true story. And Everything else is just me making stuff up. But what's really funny is I got a Kirkus review and the Kirkus review was really good and I was really mm -hmm. proud of it. But about the ending, they said this, there was a great deal of improbability in that portion of the tale. And I find it really ironic because it's the only portion of the tale that's true. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's amazing. That's I mean, obviously, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but the ending is it's it's amazing. It's it's unbelievable. But, you know, you sometimes stuff like that, it well, can yeah, happen. You know, truth yeah. is stranger than fiction. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And so that's why I ended up writing about Ukraine. She's Ukrainian to tell the story. I mean, I could have told that ending without telling this story. I could have told any story. But this story needed to be the one. She's Ukrainian and it needed to be in Ukraine because otherwise it wouldn't have felt authentic to me at all. Yeah. And so I I think maybe I needed it even more than she needed it because I don't think she ever really felt that it would be a story. And I always knew that it was going to be a story. And so I I don't know. I just I needed it to be Ukraine. And I knew nothing about Ukraine. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I shouldn't say nothing. I mean, I knew they'd been part of the Soviet Union. Yeah. That's what I knew. <laughs> yeah. So um, I just started doing research and found what I needed to find. And that's where I put my story. Nice. Well, I'm glad you did. It was a very enjoyable read. So your next book, An Enemy Like Me, takes place during World War II. Can you give us a little bit of what that story is and where the inspiration came from? Okay, so this one is inspired uh, very loosely by my grandfather. My grandpa was um, a soldier in World War II. He fought in Germany, but our family is of German heritage. So uh, my maiden name was Buffmeyer, you know, very German. And although at the point that my grandfather was in World War II, our family had been here for, for many generations, he one time said to me how odd it was to be in Germany and the enemy was people that could like be cousins, you know, and that he found that very disconcerting. And so that was years and years and years ago. I was a child when he said that to me. So 
I wrote the story, An Enemy Like Me, and I changed it so that the character was a first-generation German-American. And he's fighting in World War II as an American in Germany. And he recognizes that the people that he thinks are the enemy, which are truly people that are just like him, see him as the enemy. It's kind of a, a very poignant you know, realization about war and what that means. And the story is seen from the eyes of the soldier, his wife, and the four-year-old son that he leaves behind. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, you know, all of the different angles of what, what is war and explores the idea like war is something that governments do. And then yeah. people like you and me and, and husbands and sons, they're the ones that are fighting it. And usually they're fighting it for a very different reason. They're fighting it for the protection of their home and their family and their and their their lives as they know them. And the government that put it together is doing it for a very different reason. And I yeah. think we even see that right now with Russia and Ukraine. You know, um, a lot of the Russian soldiers are fighting because what other choice do they have? And the Russian government is fighting a war for a very different reason. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Well, it sounds very interesting, that's for sure. Um, when can we expect that one to come out? So I'm thinking probably early next year, maybe January or February of 2023. Don't hold me to a date, but that's what it's looking like at this time. Yeah. Great. And so is historical fiction a genre that you often read in? And if not, what is your favorite genre? To yeah, in? so I read a lot of historical fiction, but I also really enjoy... I enjoy anything where the characters are really well developed. So it can be historical, it can be contemporary. I can even read a, a good, you know, like fantasy or science fiction, as long as the characters are well developed, more so than the world that they're living in. Because I tend not to really care quite as much about the world building and the the laws about that world and whether or not magic can be used this way or that way, that kind of just washes right over me and mm -hmm. I get down to the characters. So if, if it's a well-written character, put them in any setting and I'm a happy camper and I love to read it. But yeah. I tend to I tend to really like historical fiction just because I don't know, there's a part of me that feels nostalgic for something that I never knew and will never know. So yes. Oh, I understand that feeling. I get that all the time. <laughs> there was a word that I just learned last year. I think it's I don't want to, I'm probably gonna murder it, but it's like it's a it's a Welsh word. It's like hireth, I think is how you pronounce it. And that sort of is that nostalgia for a place you've never been or a time you've never lived. And I'm like, oh, that's what I feel. That's I love, I love stories like that. And I love, you know, like I'll just be randomly, you know, on a walk or something and just something will spark that. And every time I feel that, I feel like writing. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it great? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I found it interesting in your media kit, which, by the way, was fantastic. It was very well laid out. And anyone who does not have a media kit should have something like that. So that's amazing. Um, I read that the five words you've never used to describe yourself as a writer are order, pigeonholed, formulaic, eccentric, and savvy. So I'm going to guess that you are a pantser when you write. Am I right? I am very much a pantser. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have tried so hard to be more 
organized because somewhere in my head, I had a feeling that that was the right way to write. And I've given up on that because maybe it is, and maybe I'm doing it all wrong, but I cannot do it that way. It, it makes me crazy. And not only that, but I'll create a beautiful outline. And then the characters in my head absolutely refuse to follow it. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. just refuse. And it's like, no, we're going to the left. They're all screaming to the right, to the right. Yeah. And I can't, you know, <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm a person that I'm very organized in terms of like, I have lists. If you were to look here on my desk right now, I have a list for the grocery store that I'm going to do tomorrow. And I have a list for Costco that I'm going to do. And I have a list of things that need to get done between now and Monday. My husband's having some surgery. And so I have some things, you know, that I need to get done. And I have, I have lists everywhere, but I have no times on them unless it's something like this, where I know that you and I are meeting at three, but don't tell me that I have to write from 11 to one. Yeah. And don't tell me that I have to make a list of exactly what's going to happen next in my plot because it makes me crazy. I don't like being told what to do. So yeah. I don't do it. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm very much a panster. I just, I can't, I've tried. I really have. I've <laughs> even tried to do the, the writing every day, you know, pick a time of day and, write for an hour every day or write a certain number of words every day. Not happening. I cannot <laughs> do it. I have tried. I've been told the longer you do it, the easier it becomes. I feel like that's kind of like running when people tell you, you know, eventually you'll run and you'll get that runner's high. I've never found the runner's high. All I have found is, is this hurts and I hate it. And that's Same. the way I feel about trying to write from six to seven in the morning and try to get a thousand words out. I hate it. Yeah. And then even if I've managed to do it, I don't like what I've written. Mm -hmm. It feels very forced. Most of the time it just gets thrown away. And I don't want to sit and write a thousand words that I know for a fact I'm going to throw away when I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so, sense. And I don't I'm think a there's a right way or a no. wrong way, right? Every person has their own right way that works for them. And yeah. I mean, trying things, that's great because you never know if you're going to like it or not. If you, exactly. if you don't try it. Oh no, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in, you know, go ahead and give it a shot. Yeah. But I, I tried it too long because I had this horrible feeling that I was wrong and that the only way to really be a writer, to really be an author was you had to do, and then, you know, name the list of the million things that you should do that I wasn't doing. Mm -hmm. And probably in the last six months or so, I've given up on most of that. I feel like I am an author yeah, and I do it the way I do it. Absolutely. And that's perfect for me. And if anyone asks how I do it, I'm welcome to tell them, but I'm also going to tell them, but that doesn't mean it'll work for you. Right. Yeah. You know, everybody's everyone their has own their own. Yeah, yeah. Everyone has their own thing. I went to a writer's retreat and I felt the first time and I was there with three other women who were all published and I was not, and I didn't feel like I should be there. And, you know, imposter syndrome, huge. I knew as soon as they realized who I was, that they were going to shun me and wouldn't want me there with them. I mean, I just, it was so weird. It was a weird feeling. Um, but all three of them had a lot of rituals that they did. And I'm sure now what, what it was, was it's a way to kind of get their mind prepared to write. Mm -hmm. That they've done this long enough that this is the thing that kind of like gets them in the zone. But for me, I'm watching them thinking, oh, no, I don't have any of that. 
You know, there was one who had a certain kind of coffee and it was cold pressed coffee. And there was like all of these things you had to do before that coffee was ready. And then she would walk away with her steaming mug of coffee and she would write, Mm -hmm. you know, and then there was me. And I'm like, I don't have anything. I went home and told my kids, I think I need a beret or something so that I'm, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, in the last six months or so, I think I finally understand that everybody has their own thing that works for them and it's okay. And you just go right. If, if the end product is you have a manuscript and that manuscript is good enough to send off, then it doesn't matter if you did it an hour a day, or if you did it all in one big fell swoop, or if you wrote once a month for 16 years, I don't think it matters. I think what matters is, is that, that you got the product done. So absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I'm the same way, by the way, with the lists. Um, I have lists for my lists, basically. (laughs) I did. I used to pants my way through my work, but I did try the outlining and I am navigating more towards that. I I just figured, okay, while I make lists in my life and I organize this and I organize that, so why not try it with writing? So I think I'm kind of in between. I like to have that order, but I'm very open to changing it. And, you know, if I, if I think of something else along the way that just seems better then that's what I'm going to go with. And I do enjoy that period of discovery. I like that discovery writing where I don't know exactly how I'm going to get to the next point. Right. Yeah. Sometimes I'm writing along and it's like, where is this going? I don't even know where this is going to go. And then all of a sudden it becomes so apparent where it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And, and you know exactly how you're going to get it there. And it just, it's like, it's like magic and it just moves to where it's supposed to be. And I really love that feeling. And I get really caught up in my lists. And, you know, if my list says that I'm supposed to be doing something, then how do I get to mark it off if I didn't do it? Yep. You know, and I really love marking my list. That's my favorite part of making a list (laughs) is is scratching it all out. And so not achieving it is something that I, oh, it just bothers me. So yeah, if I made it, if I made an outline, it would have to be loose enough that I would be able to scratch through places that I was done, even if I didn't follow it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I totally hear you on that. What is the easiest element for you to write in the novel or in a novel? I love dialogue. Yeah. I really love dialogue. Um, I, I find it to be such an easy way to move a story forward to get out information that you really want to get out in sunflowers beneath the snow. A lot of times when I'm trying to help people understand a historical concept or something that's really important to understand, but would be boring, like, you know, something about the political, you know, the political landscape at the moment that can get really dry. But it isn't so dry if you have the husband and wife debating back and forth over who they're going to vote for and why. You can add so much in with dialogue that can then still be very interesting instead of, oh, we're getting a two-page lecture on, you know, the geopolitical, 
junk of Ukraine in 1992. I mean, nobody wants to know that. I mean, not that way. I mean, I, I shouldn't say nobody. Some people really thrive on that kind of thing. But most people who are reading a novel are not doing it so that they can find out the exact political terrain of 1992 in Ukraine. But in order for the story to move forward, you needed to know it. So to put it into dialogue for me, is just a wonderful way of allowing that to happen very organically where it doesn't feel so lecture-like. Mm-hmm. So no, I just, I love dialogue. That's my easiest. The hardest thing for me is um, scene setting. Mm-hmm. I would love to just write as, I wonder if it's even possible to write a whole story where you just don't even really know where they are and it doesn't matter. Because I think for me, in my mind, usually the setting doesn't matter. I love a good story and I love a good character. And that good story and character could happen just about anywhere. And it doesn't matter to me. That's the hardest part for me is getting the setting right. In fact, I agonize over that because it's like, how much more does someone want to know about this? I mean, I've already told them we're in Ukraine. What more do they need to know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, and you get to a point where, you know, you can feed in a little detail here and a little detail there, but you also want the reader to kind of, to take that up, right? And to kind of then you're interacting with your reader, which is really good. So if they're kind of helping to build that scene based on a few little details that you've left in there, then that's great. Right. Right. Well, that's the way I feel. I'm glad that I'm glad you and I agree. (laughs) (laughs) I think it also depends on the genre too. So with me, I write a lot of Gothic thrillers right Uh now. I'm working on a Gothic thriller. I write domestic thrillers as well. And maybe it's not so important here, but with the Gothic, I find that, you know, very much of that is playing on the setting because that kind of, especially with the one that I'm working on right now, because the house has a point of view in some Mm -hmm. small chapters. So there is a lot of detail in, in the setting and, and how it's playing on the emotions of the characters so, and, but again, it depends, I think, on the genre. And I, I, I agree that, it, you know, in some of those stories, you don't need a lot of detail because you can kind of fill that in based on the little bits that are left there by the author. Right. So. Yeah. I think that's why I would never be really good at different, some genres. I just don't think that they're a good fit for me. Now, who knows? Maybe as time goes on, I'll develop that more and be stronger in that area. But for right now, I would have to say that's my weakest element for me. Yeah. I think that in the book I do fine. Oh yeah. But yeah. but it was it was very much not it did not come out the first time. Let's put it that way. In my first 50,000 words, it was not there. You know, mm-hmm. and I I had to go back and say, okay, if the reader were anyone other than you, what would they like to know about what's going on yeah. in this story? And, and even in my real life, I tend not to notice a lot of detail things, what I call background information. My mom and I can be talking to the very same individual, having the same conversation. That individual walks away and my mom will say, did you notice that crooked tooth? And I'm like, she had teeth. (laughs) I mean, it's, I don't know. It's like certain things just don't really matter to me. I myself try to look nice and I try, but I don't really notice other people. 
in that way. I'm way more likely to say, no, but did you hear the quiver in her voice when she said such and so? Like, Mm -hmm. that's what I'm noticing. And so when I'm writing, I tend to be, you know, the quivering voice. I get all of that in there. And then I have to go back and say, so she had to have been clothed and she has hair. We need to talk about some of those things. (laughs) (laughs) But that's good though, because you're picking up on a detail that probably really matters for whatever's happening in the story, right? Or, or whatever, whatever's in that character. So a quivering voice. I'm definitely a character builder. That's, that's what, that's what I like. That's the portion of the story that I like. And so, you know, my, what's harder on me then is to go back and say, okay, what details are pertinent for other readers that I really should add in here, you know, to make this story so that they're not wandering along going, where are we? Mm-hmm. You know, where are we? What, what does she look like? Um, so then moving into a different area, um, you spent some time cycling across the U S on a tandem mm-hmm. bike with your husband and you raised some money for toys for tots, which is amazing. And you're turning it into, or you have turned it into um, an inspirational nonfiction book. So where are you with that? And can you kind of give us an idea of what we would find in that book? I have started writing it. I I went through and I kind of did my first word vomit. I have 45,000 words. I don't know where to go with it from this point. And so I've kind of just pushed it off to the side and I'm going to come back to it and look at it and figure out where it needs to go. But it's more... (laughs) Once again, the backdrop is the bicycle ride. And so you'll hear about the bicycle ride, but it is not a book about the bicycle ride. It is a book about things I learned about myself and about life while riding 3,102 miles on the back of a tandem bicycle. Um, So it's, you know, it's things like, you know, what's really important, you know, and it's things like, you know, you don't need as much stuff as you thought you did. When we went on this trip, I thought I had done such a good job packing. I, you know, we were going to be gone for over three months and man, look how little I'm taking. And at the, I think around 10 days, we sent back 20 pounds of stuff. And at 20 days, we sent back another 20 pounds. And if I could do it again, I won't. I loved it, but it, I'll never do that again. Three months is a long time to be away from life. And I'm, you know, I did it once. Who needs to do that twice? Um, But if I were to do it again, I'd probably get rid of another 10 pounds Mm -hmm. because you learn very quickly. What do you really need? What's really important, you know, and then you can, you can change that over to in life. It's the same way. You know, we're all dragging around stuff that we don't need to be dragging around. And why are we doing that? And I don't just mean stuff. But, you know, ideas that we're dragging around, belief systems that we're dragging around, beliefs about ourselves, beliefs that we have about others that that not only are they not true, but they're not serving us. You know, they're not doing anything good for us. And yet you're, you're dragging them around with us anyway. And, you know, so that kind of thing. So that's that's kind of what it's about is just things that I learned. And this trip healed me. You know, I'd spent 14 years in an abusive, emotionally abusive relationship. I got out of that. I thought I was doing well. Uh, I remarried and I have what I call swamp gas where, you know, you're going along, things seem fine. And then something pokes 
a hole in what you think is a perfectly, you know, a, a perfectly good you. And this swamp gas comes bubbling up out of nowhere and you find yourself either angry or despondent or, or something over something that's minor and you can't even really figure it out. And it's, it's like almost a PTSD kind of thing where someone said something that just like started this chain reaction of junk that was happening a lot. I was working with a therapist and I was like, you know, we got to get this. I don't like it. Well, 3,102 miles, that's a lot of time to think. It's a lot of time to recognize that you can do things that you didn't think you could do. Um, It it was a hard trip. I'm not an athlete. I am a desk jockey. Um, I had not been on a bicycle in 40 years when I met Bruce and, and we decided we're going on this trip. It was something he wanted to do since 1976. I wanted to have an adventure. I needed to prove something. I needed to prove it to me. I needed to prove it to my kids. I needed to prove it to every, everyone around me that there was something more to me than this beaten down woman that, you know, stayed in this bad relationship for so long. Like I just needed something big. And when he said he wanted to go across the country on a bicycle, I thought that's big. So we did it, but I, I left as one woman and I came back as another one. And so I think the book will kind of talk a lot about those things that I just learned about me and people and religion. And, and I don't think you have to be a bicycle enthusiast to like it. And I don't believe that you have to go on a cross country bicycle trip, but I think everyone should have an adventure of some kind, even if it's fine, I'm going to change jobs. I've always wanted to do something else or, or, you know, I've never been able to, to walk a, a 5k and I'm going to do that or whatever it is. I think that it, it teaches you a lot about who you are. And now I know that no matter what I can do anything I put my mind to. Yeah. That's if I amazing. don't want to do it, that's a whole different story, but n- never again, will I doubt whether I can do something I can. Mm-hmm. I just have to determine if I want to. That's amazing. So it's incredible. I mean, it sounds like an incredible journey and a very profound one too. So yeah, I look yeah. forward to to hearing some more updates about that. Super. I'll let you know. Yeah. yeah. So my last question would be: what do you enjoy writing more? Fiction or nonfiction? I like fiction better. Um, nonfiction. Well, it depends. Like nonfiction articles, it's just it's just writing. You know, when I write for the small businesses, I feel like I do a service. It's a good thing. Um, it's a thing that helps pay the bills. You know, it it's it's good. It's fine, but it doesn't take anything of me. I just have a. a I've been doing it now for twenty two years. It comes very naturally. They need an article. I do a little research. They tell me some things they want to make sure are in the article. I write the article and then it's done. Um, Fiction writing is a different animal completely. The nonfiction that I'm writing about our ride kind of falls into the fiction-ish, the way I feel about it, because it's a different kind of nonfiction. It's more in the memoir type category. And to me, that's, that's different than just straight nonfiction. 
So, but I like the fiction. I think I like, I like the creativity that you're allowed in fiction. Um, I like the fact that fiction has some rules, but you're allowed to break them. Uh, In business writing, you're really not. I mean, a rule is a rule is a rule and you've got to follow it. And if you don't, they don't like your article. And, you know, and in in fiction writing, yeah, you have to follow the rules pretty much because your readers expect things, but it's okay to break the rules every now and then and throw something in that they're not expecting or Mm -hmm. in a way that they weren't expecting it. I like that creativity. Yeah, absolutely. As long as you know what the rule is and you understand it, which is talked about a lot in the writing community then it's okay to break it after (laughs) intentionally. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Um, What tips would you have for our listeners who are considering publishing with a hybrid company? Like what did you look for and and what kind of, I guess, advice would you have for listeners who are looking for that? I would, the first thing that I would say is do a lot of chatting back and forth before you ever sign a contract. Because if they're not responding quickly to you before they get you to sign the contract, they're not going to respond any quicker after. You you want to be sure that you're reaching, that you're going to be working with someone who is responsive to you. You don't want to you don't want to ask a question and then have to wait 10 days to get your answer. You want to be sure that it's a it's a good back and forth. Um, I would recommend that when you get the contract that you don't sign it without having someone look at it who understands contracts so that you don't accidentally sign rights away that you thought you were keeping. I don't believe that there is necessarily a right or wrong in a contract. I think there is, do you know what you're signing and are you okay with it? And if you don't understand something in a contract, don't think, oh, it probably doesn't matter. It does matter. Don't sign it until you understand it. And don't sign it. Don't sign away any rights that you don't understand what that means in terms of how is it going to affect you later. If you don't understand, ask. If you're not getting the answers in a way that makes sense to you, ask someone else. Keep asking until you really understand what am I doing? What are my rights? What are their responsibilities? In a hybrid situation, you pay up front. And then from the point that you're selling your book, you get all the royalties. Mm-hmm. So in a in a lot of other publishing, what happens is, is they pay for the things up front and you don't get royalties until they've paid themselves back. In this way, it's it's flipped. So know up front how much money, exactly what are you paying, when are you paying it, what are you getting for it? You don't want to get two-thirds of the way down into the road, already have money invested, and then find out, oh, there's more fees and you didn't know about it. Yeah. You know, I liked that with atmosphere. They were very upfront. I knew exactly what the fees were. I knew exactly when they were due. There was never anything added. There was never a surprise. Oh, here's an invoice that you didn't know about. I never had any of that. And so those would be things that I would look for. You know, just really, are they responsive to you? Do you understand the contract? Are you okay with what it is they're going to do for you? And are you okay with whatever rights you're giving away or keeping or whatever? Great tips. That's awesome. Do you have anything that we didn't go over that you wanted to talk about? 
Okay, so I have a list of 10 historical fiction novels that you probably have never heard of that will make you cry. And if you go to my website, which is www.terrymbrown, and that's Terry with one R, dot com, um, you can sign up for my newsletter and you get that that list. And I love that list because it's not the historical fiction that you find on any bestseller list, but these are historical fiction that should be on a bestseller list. Like they're really good, but they just weren't picked up because the way the bestseller list works, if you don't fit into their little, you know, their little category of the year, you just usually don't get to be there. Um, And so there's some really great titles and they were curated from other historical fiction readers who sent them to me and said, oh, here's a good one. Here's a good one. So I have this great list. Awesome. You should probably add your book to that list because it made me cry. <laughs> it was it really awesome. good. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, Terry, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It's been a pleasure. And it has been wonderful. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you heard something that resonated with you. I hope you enjoyed it. And I would love it if you would give a rating to the podcast. It would really help badass writers be seen by more writers who might enjoy it as well. I hope you come back on Tuesday for my next guest interview with Jillian McClory, an author from Toronto. Until then, keep being badass. Badass.